Hello, and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. We hope you're safe and well wherever you may be. Today we hear from John McVeigh, Chief Executive of UK Independent Producers Trade Body Pact, about how the nation's content continues to make waves around the world despite the impact of COVID-19 and Brexit. And Chris Bonney, Chief Executive of Rights at Cineflex Media, on how the distribution landscape is changing and the challenges and opportunities that lie ahead in 2021. With the virtual version of the 2021 London screenings underway, C21 has put together a series of panel discussions and one-on-one interviews to coincide with the event, exploring the key trends and issues front of mind for buyers and sellers right now, the place of UK programming on the global stage and some of the shows to watch out for. John McVeigh, Chief Executive of UK Independent Producers Trade Body Pact, spoke with Karolina Kaminska about how the nation's content continues to make waves around the world despite the impact of COVID-19 and Brexit, and why the shifting dynamics of US streaming opens new opportunities but presents challenges for BritBox. So, John, 2020 was obviously an extremely challenging year for the global TV industry amid the COVID-19 pandemic. Despite these challenges, PAC's 2019-2020 TV exports report showed that UK TV exports increased 6% in that year. Can you talk to me a little bit about these findings, um, in particular, to start off with, which programme genres were the main drivers of this growth? Well, I think all genres have been selling well. Um, you know, clearly, you know, drama gets a lot of focus, but, you know, we sell everything. So um, breaking it out is is often quite difficult. But I think the advent of more broadcasting opportunities, if you want platforms, streamers, broadcasters globally, is what's increasing sales. And also, I think a focus on those buyers for quality and creativity. You know, audiences globally are very fickle. We've spoiled them. As an industry, we we make brilliant stuff, really exciting, really engaging, really emotional, really, really connects with audiences. So they're not about to go back to something which isn't good. So I, I think what the UK has experienced, not just last year, but over several years, is an appetite in the global markets for high quality programming and also high quality ideas because we not only sell finished programs we also sell formats and that's part of our exports as well so i would say you know those are the factors that are driving what have been driving historically up to pandemic and then i think you know there'll be this sort of before covid and after covid effect as well uh, in the markets but I, I think the you know the uk has fought hard over nearly 20 years to become a significant exporter uh, and supplier of high quality content to global buyers and that's why you know you see uh, the numbers going up year on year uh, as we satisfy the needs of those markets and the needs of those audiences uh, and uh, long make that continue. So now moving on to countries which countries have the biggest uptake of UK content? Well North America um, you know it's, it tends to go you know <clears throat> Europe is still a very significant part of our market it still accounts for about a third of our exports uh, and that's very important and we've been working with colleagues across broadcasting and distribution to make sure that as a consequence of Brexit, we don't suffer any um, unintended consequences uh, of that. It's a really important market for us. The rest of the world, you know, particularly, you know, 
Asia, Australia is also important. The Scandies are important, always have been. And North America is where the you know real growth has been uh, over many years. But that's not just growth in sales. North America is also from our own census, which is, this isn't captured in the export report, but from our own census, UK Indies last year, 19 to 20, earned more than a billion pounds from non-UK originating commissions. Uh, and the vast bulk of that was from North America. So we're not only we're not only selling them finished programs, we're selling them our ideas. And, you know, we probably, you know, in terms of who takes share from the US market, uh, you know, the UK is a major player in that market. What is it about UK content that you think is so compelling to international buyers? I mean, you've talked about quality there, but why the UK? Why, why don't they go elsewhere? Well, I think one, I mean, it's to do with how our market's structured. We, we have four very large broadcasters who must spend a certain amount of money on origination. It's highly competitive. We're a small country of high value. We have the world's second largest audiovisual economy. And we have audiences who are very, very fickle. <laughs> and who enjoy, rightly, the, the, that they expect to have brilliant television when they switch their telly on. Uh, whatever they're watching, they expect to see something engaging, exciting, really well made, really well scripted, really well acted, whether that's it's a sin or natural history. or So that has meant that we have created an audiovisual culture, which is very highly, a high performance culture. You know, there, there's no direct subsidies. Like in France, you can go and get a subsidy from the CNC and sort of make whatever you want. I can truck up and say I'm a French producer and give me money. Yep. We, we have a more free market competition approach to television. Um, it's still culturally important and culturally significant, but it is also a business and it's a very competitive and but also highly rewarding business if you get it right. So that's a whole set of drivers towards high performance. You're not going to sell a big drama if you don't really put all the money on screen. Your buyers aren't going to be that happy. They're not going to pay you a premium. So the, all the incentives we've created in the market over decades have led to the UK, given that we're a tiny country, um, really, to be the world's second largest audiovisual economy and the world's second largest exporter. And it did say in the report that revenue from France decreased. So do you know why that would have been? Um, It could be a number of things. It could be maybe their broadcasters changed their buying strategy. Maybe they didn't decommission a drama, so the slots weren't there to sell to. Could be a whole range of things. But, you know, by and large, one year's decline in one territory might be another that same year's increase in, in another territory. So it's always quite hard to get into those details around a, a few percentage points change because of the factors may be temporary or maybe cyclical rather than structural. Can you talk about some of the main trends to emerge from the report and what they mean for UK producers and distributors of UK programming? Well, clearly, you know, the world's looking for high-end drama, uh, high-end natural history, high-end factual, and those will be significant genres. As I say, you've got to think about before COVID and after COVID, that what people will want to see, what people will want to buy is no doubt going to change. Yep. You know, it's a global pandemic. It has impacted on our societies and cultures quite profoundly. And broadcasters or platforms will no doubt seek to engage with that, whether that's, um, you know, let's make more comedy (laughs) to cheer everyone up because we're all miserable stuck in our houses, or let's do something more personal, uh, more about the personal experience, the tragedy, the loss, you know, something that. So it's quite hard to say what what pre-COVID going forward, though, 
those are the trends. I think the market will adjust to the world that every network finds itself in and how they see themselves positioned uh, with their own society and customers. And unfortunately, the UK is currently in its third lockdown um, and it's yep. going to be some time before social distancing restrictions are lifted. This is obviously having an impact on production. So do you think that could in turn negatively affect TV export numbers for the 2020 to 2021 period? Um, well, it probably will because we won't have delivered finished programmes in time for about everyone's in the same boat. Um, I mean, there's effectively a six to nine month delay on delivery. Yep. So there's a hole. Now, what happened during the pandemic was uh, all the UK distributors and indeed the global buyers bought everything or sold everything they've got on their shelf. Yep. So actually our export numbers might be even better because the markets realising there was going to be a delay on new content bought archive. Yep. And, you know, I mean, I, I know talking to some British distributors, 2020 was a very good year for sales. <laughs> because networks who normally have passed on a drama that was made a couple of years ago because they want something new, knowing that they were going to have a hole in their schedule, bought the drama from a couple of years ago um, or whatever it was, a factual program or daytime series. or So I, I think it's going to be hard to see what the, the next numbers look at because some of that will be covid <laughs> sales, whether that's going to be the same going forward, another question. But, you know, production, we worked very hard to get production back up and running again. And, you know, by the end of the summer, by and large, we saw the recovery starting. And on current projections, uh, we must be close to about 80% of where we were pre-COVID. And certainly for runaway production, that's even higher than it was pre-COVID because everyone stopped filming, not because we were told to stop filming by the government, but because we couldn't work safely. When we were able to get safe working and also the restart scheme which covers uh, effectively suspension costs because we can't get insurance then all the things that were suspended in March have been working hard to restart and most of them have restarted so the, there is a drag there is a lag in the system but touch wood we're, we're not going to face the complete you know the impact of a hundred percent closure like theatre or touring music or you know so TV and film have actually come out of this in pretty good shape to be quite honest. And I wanted to ask you about Brexit as well. Could Britain's mm -hmm. departure from the EU hamper the UK's TV exports in the coming year? Not in the coming year, no. We, I mean, we are signatories to a Council of Europe Transfrontier Television Convention. That qualifies all British programming as European. So if you're a French uh, broadcaster, if you buy British programming, it's European. And we will remain part of that convention for some time yet, so it won't have any impact next year. What is having an impact and uh, uh, which isn't really Brexit, it's a combination of Brexit and COVID, you know, the two riders of the apocalypse, that, you know, we now have to get separate visas, you know, much like touring musicians. Previously, we could film in multiple locations with one point of entry into Europe. Now, if we were filming in multiple locations, we would have several visas to fill in, all of which may be different, all of which add burden and cost and carnies. Everyone's still working that through. Uh, I think some member states have already responded, like the French, ironically, have said, no, of course you can come in France, it won't be a problem. We will make it easier. Um, well, other member states could choose to do that as well. 
So if you were, say, a member state on the Iberian Peninsula and you wanted to attract UK producers to film on location, you may want to make life a bit easier for us because that may, may make you more attractive and we may come and spend our pounds and dollars in your economy rather than spending it in someone else's economy. So that's that's a consequence of Brexit. British programming and uh, is European and will remain European and we've been working hard with the UK government to make sure that uh, that convention is maintained and sustained going forward. Clearly, as the biggest net exporter to Europe, we're, we're not always maybe welcomed with open arms by domestic producers in European countries because we're effectively selling programming into their market and they're they're often not very keen about that. Even if the audiences love it, I mean, bear in mind that Midsummer Murders is our biggest selling drama and is loved across Europe. It's a primetime show. But, you know, if I was a domestic producer in France, I may not be happy that that's an acquired programming sitting in that slot um, and generate, you know, getting huge audiences. But, you know, that's the job of the broadcasters to deliver to the desires and tastes and passions of their audiences. And increased M&A activity is something we're seeing more of in the global industry as the landscape becomes more competitive. What might this mean for UK TV exports going forward? Well, I mean, I think it'll depend where people come out through the COVID. You know, those companies, you know, we saw it pre-COVID as well, where some companies which had distribution arms failed or or were you know were broken up um so it's not just m a sometimes it goes the other way as well so i think it's quite hard to say where we are i mean i think clearly you know if you've had difficult year because of covid uh, where income's been stalled where your bottom line is maybe not looking as good as you'd hoped it would because you were looking to then get a multiple to then hopefully maybe facilitate some m a activity covid will have an impact on that so you know, I mean, at the very big level, you know, the big platforms or the big broadcasters or things like that, it doesn't really matter because their revenue streams are so diversified, you know, telecoms or or other businesses. I don't think it has an impact on that. Indeed, some of them have probably done really well because of COVID. For the production side, I, I think there may be some, you know, let's get together to survive better through a difficult time. There may be a bit of that. But, you know, I, I think there'll be a little bit of an assessment going on as well about the impact of the pandemic on revenues, on where people were looking to go, on investment. I think it'll take a little bit of time for people to sort of really get under the hood of all that and then then think about what they're going to be doing. And streaming and on-demand viewing has been a massive disruptor to the industry over the last few years. As we see more and more of these streaming services going global, and one example I would like to highlight there would be BritBox, how do you expect that to impact UK exports in the future? Do you think there is potential for BritBox to hold back UK content for its own service once it rolls out across Europe? And if so, would that harm the UK's TV exports in the 2020 to 2021 period? Um, well, BritBox won't, doesn't have the rights to do that. They aren't entitled to that. They would have to be commercially negotiated with the producer who owns them. So we we have arrangements where BritBox can acquire programming in the UK. If BritBox US or BritBox Australia wants programming, they will acquire them from distribution uh, companies or producers directly under commercial terms. So BritBox does not have any rights to do that. And if it seeks to do them, we will uh, resist um, uh, that entirely, as indeed the whole sector would. I mean, the question for BritBox is if I'm going to sell to BritBox in America, or I can sell to Netflix and get a higher price for North America, it's a matter of price and competition. So whether they open up or not really doesn't matter. Um, 
they, you know, whether they'll be a significant player or not will depend on what they pay and what they deliver. So, you know, if I've got a top-end UK drama and it's a question of BritBox acquiring it for North America or Amazon or Stars or any of the other multiple VOD players, I will go to the market and get the best price. And if, Brit, and if BritBox isn't commercially competing, then they may get it or they may not. We have seen some of the major US studios holding back content for their own streaming platforms. With less US yep. dramas available to buyers, could UK drama sales see a boost in countries outside of the US? Uh, well, maybe, We'll have to wait and see. I mean, I mean, by and large, the days of when the studios used to sort of bundle are probably over. You know, when they used to you used to have to buy a whole lot of shit in order to get the, the pre- premium content as a bundle, and it was a way for the studios to hit their their numbers. That's probably changing as they roll out their their VOD platforms and they want more catalog on there. I mean, if you look at Disney Plus, I think is a fantastic service, and you know it has virtually everything. And imagine that all the licenses for that content around the world when they come to an end they will not be renewed so I think that's the way the world's going um, if they become acquirers of content currently they're they're not really acquiring they're just showing their own but if they become more general you know people like stars or Netflix acquire lots of content as well as commission content that's a more mixed opportunity for producers because you can produce for them or you can sell to them so that's and that's a good opportunity actually the streamers for my industry have been good news they, they are investing hundreds of millions on new UK content but they also acquire that content and uh, that can get out to an audience the question you'll make as a distributor is if I sell that show to Netflix and it goes everywhere around the world is the money they're paying me as much as I could earn from selling it myself to those territories and that's a straight commercial logic to that uh, uh, and that that's that's how the world will, will develop whether you know those dedicated services for the other studios will acquire third-party content I, I think we still have to see. And focusing directly on PACT now, can you talk about your international strategy, particularly with regards to the Global Creative Alliance? Yeah, well, we've been building, I mean, we saw well over 10 years ago now that the UK domestic market was effectively a flat market. There was no growth in terms of the amount of production. Yep. So, you know, the, while, while we're uh, overall growth has gone in, the sort of share that indies take out the market is quite the same. You, you look over 10 years, we take about 1.5, 1.6 billion from the UK market um, because we're competing against BBC Studios, ITV, you know, other suppliers. So knowing that, we wanted to uh, look at where were the other opportunities for British indies and of course that's international and as I say last year British indies generated over a billion pound in non-UK commissions so it's not our approach isn't just around exports exports as part of it but it's also I mean once I mean in 2007 um, what happened was because British Indies owned their rights they started selling formatted reality shows and factual shows into the US market which uh, um, happened at the same time as there was a writer strike so the networks were looking at blacked out parts of their schedule and along come the Brits with new reality formats Undercover Boss Scrappy Challenge and started making reality shows which got the same audiences as the precinct cop shows which they couldn't make anymore and we've never looked back so we we first of all sold them the, the formats now we're selling them original ideas but we also sell them finished programs but of course most networks want original ideas now because audiences want more original ideas so we the UK Indies have been in a really good position of not only selling ideas formats selling finished programs products but also selling new ideas as well and that's really been part of what the journey that we've been trying to get our members to go on over the past 10 years and the creative alliance 
is is just another way to facilitate that so we can hook up if we need to if we want to work in a certain territory and we need to do that with a good reputable co-producer we have relationships with all the networks for to help our members meet the right people so and for them to meet our people so that's what drives that um, it's part of a overall approach we've had about effectively globalizing uh, British Indies so that they're able to if they can't get a gig and we've got companies who don't make any productions at all for British broadcasters you know they mostly supply North America and they do very well out of it 20 years ago if someone had said British Indies would be dominant suppliers in the US market everyone would have you know fallen off their seat in laughter John McVeigh from Pact talking with Carolina Kaminska Chris Bonney is Chief Executive of Riots at Cineflix Media, a company whose slate includes dramas such as Wyona Earp, Coroner and Marcella. With the company showcasing these and other titles as part of its own content fest, coinciding with this year's virtual London screenings, Bonnie spoke to Ed Waller about how the distribution landscape is changing and the challenges and opportunities that lie ahead in 2021. Like everyone else in the TV industry, Chris, Cineflix Rights has spent the past 12 months working under a pandemic. How has it been? What's the general health of the business? It's it's held up really well. Uh, thank you. Um, and I think that will be the case for a lot of players in the, uh, particularly on you know in the distribution sector. The sadness that we've seen across the industry with slowdown in production has meant corresponding demand and the increase for acquired content. And so distributors being the parties who offer that to market, we've all naturally seen some uptick in activity um, as broadcasters have been struggling to fill slots with items on their schedule that would normally have uh, been kind of coming on stream in production. So uh, we've also, I think, benefited from having some of a number of, of strong shows delivering sort of still continuing to deliver throughout the pandemic, either they're in post or producers finding a way to continue producing. So that freshness element when a distributor has that as well has, has given some added demands. So yeah, we, we, we've, we've held up well. So the obviously there's been a, I mean, would you subscribe to the, the notion, Chris, that there's been a, a sort of a, a boom in acquisitions has that been a sort of a hedge against the sort of the impact of the production period to some degree i think that's uh that's definitely the case that's one i would say one important contributing factor to uh the healthy demand uh the distribution market is set. and i think perhaps the other is i thought you might call it retained rights but the uh, studios in particular are, are all busy launching their own streamers keeping hold more of their fresh content and indeed perhaps some of their strong existing brands and, and moving those to their own streamers so uh a lot of broadcasters are you know facing a dual challenge of both um a shortage of production a fresh production supplier perhaps for, uh, original production in their own territory alongside a slowdown in supply of um, you know what would be normal studio kind of output so yes it's a, it's a demand kind of peak uh, in two ways now obviously um, I'm, I'm interested in the impact of, of the of covid and streaming on the business now one of the obvious impacts is, is the way that market programs I, I, I'd like to hear about your your changing approach to marketing new products yeah that that's been really really interesting now you know we are a marketplace or a sector let's call it that really thrives on face-to-face contact and i think that is something we're all really looking forward to seeing a return to i think we will we've learned a lot about how to improve the bottom line effect of marketing in these times we've all had to kind of innovate a little bit more with you know the approaches to marketing 
And in fact, quite a lot, I think we've in particular have seen the kind of bottom line effect, but much more, much more kind of clearly on through our marketing activity, just by by having to sort of get involved and 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 look at it in a, you know in a fresh, different way, um, knowing that we don't have a, a stand to uh, as a backdrop or a face to face contact. So I think we'll take away a lot of learnings that will probably inform the way we go forward. It'll be driven by core face to face contact at, at at markets, physical events, and business trips. There's no substitute for meeting a client face-to-face in their office uh, or in a restaurant in their home city. But um, at the same time, we'll probably be a bit more, uh, a bit wiser about what um, the markets we, we we really need to attend. I think along, uh, that'll be one kind of one, one, one key area that we will, uh, you know, we will assess more carefully. But um, as I say, you know, I think we will we will return to a healthy degree of travel and, uh, and you know, market presence. I mean, obviously, COVID has had an impact on everything, not just pitching on over Zoom, but developing all the facets of the business. What areas do you think will retain because they're an improvement on the uh, traditional ways of doing business and what what, what ones will we jettison once uh, COVID uh, out of the way? It's a good good one. I think one of the things that we, we're we noticing most and that fact our buyers are responding to is is actually marketing product more more readily when it's available and completed and, and there's there's a habit and a, you know, and a, and a well-trusted one uh, uh, in the sector of kind of saving your, your, you know, your, your fresh content for the big markets, particularly the MIPS. But in fact, you know, we've started to perhaps even before the pandemic to you know launch content more on the basis of when it came available knowing that we would hold back a few sort of standout titles for the physical events themselves but I think buyers have responded really well to that having the chance to um, assess product as and when it's available and perhaps on its own merits outside of the bustle of a of a market where you know when when a buyer is sort of overloaded with with new offerings I think has worked well for both sides of the transaction buyer and seller so we're definitely going to take learnings from that and, and do more you know as it comes off the shelf um, basis so that's that's certainly one thing i think the other is just you know the, the value of staying close to um our producers particularly our tribe trusted and you know valued relationships uh and developing product for the market you know even earlier so it's it's clear that linear broadcasters in this recent climate uh, are under more, even more pressure than before so i think the uh the important role that um, distributors play in helping to complete finance on projects has become even more important in the last 12 months. So, you know, it's, it's talking early, working out early, how to get a show into full finance with a mix of deficit funding from direct from a, the pockets of the distributor as well as pre-selling have probably heightened in importance in, in this period as well. Now, let's just have a little look at the sort of broader industry landscape. I mean, what are the issues that you're you're thinking about on that sort of big picture kind of level with in terms of rights retention or anything like that? Yeah, uh, um, rights retention is, you know, is uh, has become the, the you know the a real centre point of, of the business strategy for content, you know, understandably. But it, it, I think it's become even more uh, the case uh, in a, uh, a a very heated market that we're in at the moment, where we you know, we're probably seeing unprecedented levels of new entrants to the market through uh, these these OTT launches. There's pretty much one a week at the moment, and significant ones as well. And so we have more demand for fresh and original content than, than we've seen arguably since the sort of the peak of the kind of deregulation of, of broadcast channels in the, you know, in the 90s. And so you've, you've got some, so many ways you can bring a show to market these days. And, and obviously there's that question that was always there from a producer's financing and a distributor's perspective of you know, how do you take a show to market to maximize its value? Uh, that question is, you know, is more pertinent than ever. And, and there's good now large money available today through one sale. Um, which is hard to turn down, but it, I think it all comes down to assessing the what's the right business model for the content you've got. What content do you have? Does 
does it have the long play? Is it a returnable show? If so, uh, you know, you've really got to make sure that, you know, it's going to the right home that will nurture and love it and take it sort of forward. Um, if that means giving up control to a powerful streamer, you know, that, that might be the right, will be the right decision. Same time, you might choose something which you think has a, a slightly more independent approach where you will go around and take three or four parties uh, on board to finance it, give you a little bit more control and perhaps build it, the franchise out over a longer term with you more at the heart of the of the business plan. One of the trends, obviously, of the, the last year as well is the sort of proliferation of local SWOD players as opposed to these global giants. Does that change the dynamic and the opportunities for companies like yourself? It, I think it does in, in, a, in, a, in a really interesting way. Yeah, and I think I'd say alongside those players who are perhaps whose appetites, you know, for, across genres can be a bit more broad, even daring than um, than their linear counterparts, has opened up again some very healthy kind of um, opportunities for content which perhaps hasn't been placed so easily within the linear market of those uh, you know um, locally. So yeah, and at the same time, those cable operators on a domestic basis again are facing significant challenges of their own to keep fresh line of content coming. So um, you know there is again a really healthy way to to sort of maintain the uh, the long tail of content in a way that we perhaps hadn't seen or, or perhaps were concerned might be diminishing. Obviously the um, the studios, the Hollywood studios making such a big play into streaming uh, over the past 12 months has created opportunities and challenges to other players in the business. What does that mean for companies like yourself? There's a range of really interesting opportunities, I think. Uh, a, a lot, there's business to do directly with those streamers because obviously they want an offering that, um, broader than just their own slate. Uh, and as they have been rolling out, you know, uh, and are still rolling out, you know, their offering, you know, there are deals to do uh, with them with some of our content. And we've, we've done those uh, and, and in the process of doing those across a, a number of titles. And in some cases, you can do that regionally and start to, to kind of roll them out uh, alongside the, the global rollout of the streamers themselves. So that gives you a bit of flexibility. It's created holes within the you know the domestic player, uh, domestic linear broadcasters, as, as I was mentioning, as their schedules have got more openings in them. And perhaps I think we've seen both an openness um, in that regard to perhaps retaining, uh, renewing licenses on you know on, on strong program brands under our control and that will be the same for other distributors as well to kind of shore up some of the stronger parts of their schedule make sure those don't get pulled to a competitor as a way of quickly attracting a subscription base as well as perhaps this uh, sales the fresh content perhaps attracting a little bit more demand than it than it was previously so there's more more buyers perhaps than there would have been again 15 months ago this is uh, we're definitely kind of in a bit of a bubble let's hope that lasts for I think for all the market because I think we know um, for all the uh, you know the awfulness of this pandemic it has meant we're all spending more time at home consuming more content and so the demand that is there in the medium term there's going to be some some losers and there's a lot of studio uh, and and others you say local operators cable channels piling more and more bets into into content and you know business services and there are going to be some winners and some losers and probably some more consolidation some of those bigger studio winners that might well gobble up some of the others it's going to be a fascinating 24 36 months i think but i think now it's a good time to be uh, either producing or uh, controlling content rollout yeah i'd like to return to that i mean like do you do you envisage sort of uh, consolidation from the top down of the big studios as well as across the indie indie sector or do you see big giants coming in from outside the business buying up uh, what we think are the big companies but they're <laughs> a lot bigger i think it would be feasible to envisage some of those with the deepest pockets on the studio and uh, you know in media a more broader media sense gobbling up some of the uh, the, the offerings um that uh, you know they're perhaps on the 
smaller to medium size that that are struggling just to, to break through in this area. So yeah, they, uh, I, I don't think you're going to see massive. Well, we've seen a few. Let's, let's face it, uh, Disney and Fox and so on. But um, there could well be some more of that. But I, w- I would guess the next steps you perhaps you will just see some natural kind of consolidation within the American-based players. I think over time. Sticking with America just briefly. I mean, obviously the the way that those studios have pivoted to to put streaming so central in their their business plan. The, the impact that's had on their legacy linear channels i'm interested in because obviously the last fall they did a move to have much more acquisition on their slate and in u.s network prime time they were buying in shows from canada buying in shows from the uk that must be good for you as a distribution company because suddenly you've got u.s network prime time buying in shows from the international market much more than they they uh, did before do you think that's just a response to covid or is it more of a permanent response to their their move towards streaming um i think there's it's a bit of both um, yeah, we, we we saw uh, Corona getting picked up by the CW. Seems to be doing well for them, which is great to see. And you'll see this across, I think, uh, a lot of the sort of the integrated groups who are both you know channels and and, uh, and streamers themselves. The network execs, uh, the linear level, need some flexibility to fill their schedules with content they feel is more appropriate to the territory they're serving. So I think you will continue to see them um, benefiting from uh, uh, the, those kind of local approaches. Let's call them to buying Canadian content for the US territory is a very natural one because there's definitely probably pressure on their budget to join the fray of you know the streaming strategy you know at the parent level you know and kind of be part of kind of content investments that uh, uh that are where decisions perhaps are made more more centrally so they'll need a they'll need a kind of mixed bag i think and so there is there's definitely room for you know, you're right for acquisitions in the uh in the domestic sense for sure now, I'm, I'm interested in companies like cineflix and they're securing their supply lines because obviously as we mentioned earlier the sort of the rights to shows are getting gobbled up much earlier in the cycle nowadays and, and talent is getting locked in to certain deals. What are the challenges presented by all of that for companies in terms of securing content for distribution? That's an ongoing challenge is the right word. At the same time, it's it's, it's sort of core to the business of any content company, particularly a vertically integrated uh, company like ours. I mean, we, we really enjoy being um, independent and creatively led and, and hopefully nimble on our feet. So definitely speed of action is something that we um, we can call on when we, when, you know, we spot content uh, that we really want to head towards. So, you know, I think we're f- we can be fast on our feet. That's one key thing. Talking at the earliest possible stages with the quality relationships we have with producers is obviously key. Also, very particularly importantly, with, you know, within our own sister production companies, where uh, both um, scripted and unscripted. Again, where we can mount route to market strategies for the content at the earliest stages to uh, give it, give them the best chance of um, being a rights retained um, kind of business model. That's not always right for the show and that's fine but it's certainly something we can be on the front foot with perhaps uh, more than many of our competitions I think that's an important kind of added added value to have Just focusing in on the scripted sector for a bit obviously you're unveiling a whole load of shows at the London screenings in the first two weeks of March the thing that we heard a lot of last year and the beginning of this year is that because of the production hiatus there's a there's going to be a shortage of scripted in many ways is that the case? I know your clients sort of are they all moving into sort of unscripted areas to, to fill those gaps or is that having an impact on sort of the, the state of the market? 
market? Is it becoming more of a seller's market in that area? Yes, I mean, I would say at the moment, probably describing things it is a, as a seller's market is, is an accurate one. Of course, there has been slowdown uh, in productions in um, various geographies. We've managed to keep our particular projects delivering well. You know, Coroner, Winona Earp, uh, Whitstable Pearl from Buccaneer Media, all delivering within the timeframes we, we anticipated. But generally, I would say uh, it's it's a factor that, that the, you know, the broadcasters they can't escape from. So there will be, I think there'll be a lot of return to you know, possibly you know, reruns of, of the stronger content to kind of shore up you know, their schedules with reliable performers and, and then probably peppering the, the schedule you know, with the shows that have and can deliver, promoting those even more strongly. And perhaps, who knows, maybe it will trigger a bit more of an openness to windowing from content which was perhaps originated from SVOD suppliers. That's something that's still working its way out of the system, let's say, but it would be a natural kind of conclusion to, uh, you know, I'd say it's probably the, particularly the next 12 months. I think now, you know, it, it, there's enough forward planning that schedules won't have been overly affected to date, although perhaps in order to, in, to kind of manage the flow of new content, some of it w- that would have launched earlier might be slowed down and, and trailed now into spring and summer and so on. But um, that might well be a, a way of kind of um, another method used by broadcasters. It's a, it's something where everyone's coming to terms with, the kind of the afterlife, let's call it, the SVOD afterlife. Um, just some amazingly produced high-quality content that's, that's now out of a first holdback from SVOD and it'll be really interesting to see how that evolves. So you anticipate a lot of content coming off SVOD and entering the sort of distribution ecosystem? I mean, th- those facts are already there. Yes, there's there's loads of content now off SVOD the, the, uh, and you know, we, you know, we're seeing examples of that working that Winona Earp being a kind of great example of that. It's selling nicely having uh, having had some life on Netflix. Marcella too, done a, you know, doing really doing extremely strong numbers now and, uh, you know, and, um, and remakes, we've got a French remake, which we're about to, br- about to uh, bring to market this spring um so uh, called rebecca but yes i think there's going to be this i think the ecosystem is definitely changing and i think uh, uh with all the pressures in play in the linear broadcast sense i think that's something to, to watch carefully i think it's still in its early stages and perhaps you know the the deals are more noisy and and stand out that have been done perhaps more of a co-production sense but i think inevitably there's going to be some more of that in evidence just lastly just focusing on the unscripted side of your business obviously there was a big boom in demand last year for sort of COVID-friendly, unscripted formats. And we've heard a lot of stories about slots moving from scripted slots suddenly becoming unscripted slots. Tell us about if that spike is real and, and what are your plan? What are your plans for this year in terms of unscripted? Yeah, it's, um, I'd, I'd say the unscripted area, consistent, strong demand. It, it has the ability, uh, compared to scripted, to move quickly, to find innovative ways to produce to budgets, even sometimes tight budgets. Use of um, archive and stock footage means you can put together really compelling shows alongside perhaps interviews or take true crime as an example, very producible in these times. So we've managed and and been massively impressed that uh, we've seen no shortage of unscripted content that we're reviewing regularly with a view to acquiring. Absolutely no shortage. And we've seen an uptick in in buyer demand and openness to um, projects that's, I'd say, perhaps a little bit more open than it has been in the past. But it's, um, I think it's great. I think the the other thing I think unscripted gives is it, you know that that ability to inf- influence the tone of a broadcaster schedule, whether it's escapism, a bit of great natural history, or you know, or iconic history.
history are all the areas that that I think we're we're all looking for in ways. The, uh, and hopefully, we're towards the back end of the of a, of a darker phase of life. But those have been able to really kind of positively impact schedules with a bit of positivity, escapism, and you know, and can still be successfully delivered. So yeah, you know, full kudos to all the innovation that's been going on with you know in the in the unscripted community in that that regard. And just lastly, I mean, looking ahead to the rest of this year, obviously, all the whole distribution industries moved into virtual marketing and virtual events and, and and things like that as as you have do you think as we get closer towards the end of the year we'll get back to norm normality we'll be sort of doing the flying around the world and doing the two or three markets every every quarter like we used to yeah i do i do i think i think i think we we'll do it with bit more knowledge and understanding than we did before and I think it will vary a little bit geographically so uh, I think there'll be more face-to-face focus as you might expect in the Latin markets very relationship very empathy driven uh, let's get together let's chat let's talk and perhaps you know some other geographies will be more happy just to do a kind of healthy mix of face-to-face and you know and zoom calls and I think we'll all find that balance but inherently we're we're social beasts who who want to get together and uh, and make business in an enjoyable way and I think that will return, yeah. And I think we'll all do that with a few more skills and, uh, and I think some more um, tools uh, on both sides, buyer and seller, that we can use to uh, help make better decisions. Chris Bonney from Cineflix Media speaking with Ed Waller. That's all for this episode, but there'll be more about the London screenings in the podcast tomorrow and throughout the next couple of weeks. We also have a dedicated microsite focused on the event, so look out for that. And in the meantime, stay safe and up to date with all the latest international TV industry developments by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 